0: Well, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. I got your book. came in the mail today.
1: Oh, there it is.
0: And you know, I was thinking, um, I'm surprised that you don't see a lot of crit- criticism of poets given all of the paper that's wasted on each page. <laughs> <laughs> it's not really very environmentally friendly. <laughs>
1: Well, if the poetry is good, then it's justified. If it's not, then it, it really is a crime against trees. I've said before right. that ninety, at least ninety-eight to ninety-nine percent of poetry that's published is uh, an insult to trees. Uh, it's 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 tree murder.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's really a tragedy. Um, you know, it's funny. I uh, I was talking to I can't remember who it was. I was talking to about this. I think it was. I can't remember. I just mentioned, I do so many of these every week and I can't remember. Um, but we were, uh, it was my buddy, Eric, um, talking about how, since everything has gotten so political, no one's really talking about anything else. And, um, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to reach out to you is because, um, you know, I was interested in all sorts of things that were completely apolitical growing up and into young adulthood and even into college, like I was reading Kerouac when I was 14. The Dharma Bums totally changed my life. Uh, Tristessa, I think, is his best work. I mean, I went through that whole entire phase of being interested in poetry and making music when I was in high school and having sort of um, a general, a genuine pursuit of understanding the human condition. I was having a human experience. And now that everything's gotten so political... Um, and, you know, necessarily so, I suppose. I mean, it's a fought that needs a fight that needs to be fought. But uh, it's really a shame because we're not talking about, like, what movies are moving or what art is um, resonating uh, as a society. We're just sort of bitching at each other. <laughs> and um, I thought maybe uh, um, having you on would be sort of a re-inspiration to – or uh, a way to kind of get back in touch because I think part of what it means to be American is to – it's not just an innovative country in terms of technology and business. It is those things, but it's also a great place of cultural development traditionally anyway. And I don't know, I just wondered kind of what you thought about that.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, most discussions of art or, uh, you know, movies or books or whatever, painting, poetry, um, those discussions are um, severely inhibited by these politics. That are so pervasive and um, to the point where, at least in poetry, and I'm sure in other mediums, other fields, but you really aren't permitted to be critical of anything, Um, particularly if you're white and straight. I I know I'm probably going to get crap for that, but it's the truth. Um, You have to uh, either say nothing or heap praise and that's all that's acceptable um i've seen in poetry where i mean this is like a i saw it coming and sure enough it's here where poets get bad reviews bad as in critical you know this book didn't really do it for me or just you know critical in the sense of um not just lavishing praise and they they see it as a kind of violence they're offended by their bad reviews and they um i think they've terrified critics in that way um i i won't name it i won't name names because it's such a small world the poetry world but critics who were once considered major critics um kingmakers even was a word that was used to describe one critic a kingmaker well the kingmaker was the editor of a very large national magazine that has a poetry section. And they published a poem that when it first came out and the poet put it on uh, Facebook, um, everybody loved it. It got like 300 likes, but within 24 hours, it was accused of appropriating culture in the sense that it was using African American vernacular English, I think, is the term. And so, ebonics. It wasn't even ebonics. I mean, I come from outside of Philly and in Delaware. I knew a lot of trailer park kids. I lived in a trailer park. Uh, people talked that way, white or black or Asian. Um, a lot of us were listening to rap music, and and it was just part of that slang was just part of the part of the nomenclature right um and this poem was about a homeless person if i'm recalling correctly and it it, then it's spoken and at points in the voice of this homeless person in a kind of slangy urban kind of way and but yeah within 24 hours it was called racist there were demands for apologies from the editors um take the poem down and so this kingmaker critic uh, completely caved to the pressure. Put uh, he appended. They didn't take the poem down, but they appended it with um, essentially a trigger warning. <laughs> and um,
0: how they did that with Gone with the Wind on Disney Plus?
1: Oh, they! <laughs> I'm surprised it's on there at all.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's on there.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> there was a, and I, you know, actually, they funny thing is they they got a bunch of bad press when they put that movie out. Then they um. Uh, uh, added a trigger warning and um, it's since been removed apparently because my wife loves that movie though I hate it and um, she watches it maybe annually and she's like hey they took the trigger warning away
1: well they're different platforms but it's like okay so Disney Plus ha- they, they, they took away Gone with the Wind but did Netflix take away Cuties? I mean oh
0: my god I know
1: so we could watch that but we can't watch some and I I I think Gone to is a terrible movie for lots of reasons. Um, it's just boring as hell, and I was forced it's to watch so fucking it.
0: Fucking boring, dude. Yeah,
1: it's way. <laughs> I mean, it just goes on forever. I I, I yeah, can't. And stand I read it. your
0: I read your article, and I immediately regretted that I brought up that movie. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to.
1: Oh no, that's okay. I'm not. Uh, uh, you know, triggered? Tri- triggered. Yeah, I'm not triggered. <laughs> yeah. I'm not triggered. Even without that particular experience with the film, I still would hate it. It's just boring.
0: Yeah, Not I hate, agree. but and just dislike. Dislike. There are, there are so many better movies to watch, even from the time. Uh, I mean, hell, it's, it's fairly contemporary with, uh, I think it's even the same year as Wizard of Oz. Maybe I'm wrong, but um, Wizard of Oz is a far superior movie, in my opinion.
1: I agree. And it's... Uh, You know, it's a a classic. There must be something cancelable, though, about Wizard of Oz. I mean, it's just waiting to happen.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. That would probably be a really good uh, article, like a sarcastic sort of conceptual James, you know, James Lindsay, like uh, trolling article about why we need to cancel the Wizard of Oz.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, like the the cowardly lying, it's clearly insensitive to people who you know, suffer from um, maybe it's post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's um uh, it's coward shaming.
0: Yeah, it's coward shaming for sure. But, you know, one thing that the Wizard of Oz gets right is um it uh, it recognizes inherent white supremacy and that the the man behind the curtain, the Wizard of Oz is an old white dude.
1: That's right. I think <laughs> so that yes.
0: <laughs> they were way that, ahead of their time. <laughs>
1: that would be the crux of of the essay. That's right. That's right. The big reveal. It's it's all the strings are being pulled by an old white dude. I mean, why not? The patriarchy, they, they're just uh, they are they're ubiquitous.
0: So the, the interesting thing to me about um, censorship, particularly with the arts, is that, you know, it's sort of always been a problem uh, going back hundreds of years even. Um <laughs> And if you look at like how, for example, I know you you had some uh, correspondence with Allen Ginsburg, how it was, it was censored for uh, sort of its explicit nature. Right. Um, And, you know, we don't see censorship today for um, things that are explicit, but we see it for things that are offensive and that sort of shifted. But censorship has sort of always been a problem for the arts. And I think it's because maybe one of the purposes of art is to push uh, buttons and, and um, cross lines. That need to be passed.
1: Well, you know Lawrence Ferlinghetti passed away recently. Uh, the The publisher and uh, the the man behind City Lights Books, the publishing house and the bookstore, and um, you know he went to court over Hal, because he published it, and um, you know the artists defended the artist who was being who was they were attempting to to pulp his books and and to to ban Hal. And it was abhorrent to the poets within Ginsburg's milieu and just, I think across the board, um, at that time. But now artists are censoring other artists. They're ganging up to censor artists that they, that they dislike for ideological reasons. And, um, that's, that's terrifying to me. And, um, it happens. It's happening at a greater and greater frequency, it seems. Um, it's, it's. I know in the poetry world, anyway, and just the literary world in general, it's, um, it's almost becoming normal to cancel an author or a poet for whatever reason, to demand that their books be, you know, uh, taken out of print, et cetera. And um, that's the major difference. Artists fought for other artists. Artists fought for freedom of speech you know in that during that time period in the 50s um but not anymore the whole idea of free speech is completely mangled and screwed up by you know for lack of a better way of describing it woke ideology i don't even know what's going on man i mean I'm, I'm it's like it's it's happened it seems to have happened so quickly you know i mean i can remember i'm not terribly old i can remember when poets were not censoring other poets and when they were actively It's got to be
0: contemporary <laughs> with social media. You know, it's got to have yeah. some sort of correlation there where it's just ideas and outrage can go viral so much more easily than they used to. Um that's right. And that's are right. They're really afraid of uh, becoming targets and so they they line up and they um they shoot the, they shoot their neighbor so they don't get shot.
1: Well they they tend to shoot the the and I'm speaking of the poetry world. They tend to shoot the poets who are the most successful. Mm-hmm. And um, it 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 seems to make sense from uh, like an evolutionary point of view where the mediocrities gang up to um, to take out the, uh, you know, the person who's seen as uh, being in power. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm I can't. St- I just, my mic uh, oh, okay.
0: so I, I have to reset it every once in a while. Oh, it, it
1: overheats. It's that it's, yeah. it's sizzling. I, well, I've had,
0: I had it fired up all, all afternoon. I forgot to turn it off after the. Um, Fired up. Yeah. Oh, I just reset it. Let's see. Hold on a second. Bear with me. Sorry about that. No, no worries. Here we go. I'm going to just make sure it's plugged in. One second. I'll be right back. And what I'm going to do while this. um...
1: trying to read the trying to read the spines. Huh. You ha- you have the Urantia book.
0: Yeah. Yeah, man, I'm into Jeez. all this esoteric shit. I became a Freemason years ago and started read- reading all the all the weird stuff, actually about 10 years ago. And uh there was a guy at my lodge that was really into that and so I bought it. It's yeah, my dad's poetry. my dad's
1: a fr- my dad's a Freemason.
0: <laughs> oh, cool. Traveling man.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he would get intoxicated and uh rattle off all, all the secret not all the the little secret things he had to memorize. <laughs> oh,
0: shit, man. That's too bad. It's not supposed to do that. I know. I know. I'm, <laughs> At I, least you know I, it's I not a cult, not. then. <laughs> no. Yeah, right. The pretty vanilla stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't remember it. I was very small. But, uh, yeah. All that stuff fascinates me, too. The Urantia book. Just People people want meaning in life, you know. And I tell um, you what,
0: you probably love my bookshelf. I got some good stuff. If you're into esoteric, weird, old wisdom, um, the best one is uh, *Morris and Dogma*. Who wrote Pike? that? Albert Pike wrote it. It's a Masonic book. Uh, he was a Confederate general, actually, and mm. he he basically um, was commissioned by the Supreme Council of uh, Scottish Rite Freemasonry to scour the wisdom of the world for the lost degrees of freemasonry and he wrote morals and dogma and put together the fourth through the 33rd degree rituals and he's like these are what is that found right them. yeah and i'm sure he massaged them and rewrote some of them so he didn't like rediscover the hidden scrolls it wasn't like you know national treasure or something like that but he basically did as much research as could be done in the late 19th century and tried to figure out what the hell happened to some of the old secret ceremonies.
1: Yeah, my dad's a 33rd degree mason and then my cousin, his first cousin, I guess my third cousin, he was I don't know what they what do they call the leader of a lodge? He was like the he was uh, the Worshipful Master. Yeah, yeah, and he had a he had a masonic uh, funeral and everything. Um but I think cuz I grew up with being kind of uh Freemasonry adjacent. Um it hasn't been an er- an area of a lot of interest. <laughs> Freemason adjacent. Yeah. Well, I don't, you know, That's some awesome. people think if you're, if you, even if you're just Freemason adjacent, you're, you're like uh tainted by the Illuminati or whatever. Yeah. I, I, wish I, I, I had a, I had a guy with dreadlocks That's when I lived in Humboldt County and everyone's high all the time. I, I wasn't. And we visited this guy, my girlfriend and I, and she would, she would buy weed from him. I wasn't interested. I just went for the ride and I told this guy, uh, that my dad's a Freemason. He pulled a sword on me and pointed it at my uh neck.
0: The dude pulled a sword.
1: <laughs> he pulled out a sword. Yeah, <laughs> he, he uh he was terrified. He, he would, oh my! You God. know, I don't know. I, I don't know why. I mean, I don't know if he thought I was like like some shape shifting Illuminati person. I don't know what he was scared of. I'm not a yeah. Mason, I don't know. But-
0: I don't know. Um, you know, obviously the Masons were heavily involved with the uh, revolution in the United States, and so I think that, coupled with their sec- their advertised secrecy, <laughs> um, has just made certain conspiracy-minded people very uh, skeptical and paranoid about the organization, but ultimately it's just a group of guys um, uh, that get together and um, practice the degree work, which is highly symbolic about... How to become a wiser person, how to become a better person, what it means to be a man. And oh, they're yeah, not allowed yeah. to talk about it. And so everybody gets freaked out when they're like, hey, how come these kind of influential people are like in this self help group and they're, you know, they don't tell each other, they don't tell the world anything about what they do. And it's, it seems of course. like a conspiracy, it, but it's not a conspiracy. If
1: it's hidden, people will ascribe nefarious intent, you know, or they little it's shadowy. It must be bad. Um, and you see that in a lot of the uh, hype over so-called cults that's been going on. Um,
0: Shit, Did you you see the news about Alison Mack today?
1: I did. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think that whole situation is horribly sad. Me too. Um, Yeah. uh, I, I think that's about as much as I can say that's articulate about it. Um, But, it, it clearly there's those documentaries that have come out are such propaganda pieces. Um, the one documentary that comes to mind, I forget what it was called. It, it wasn't the HBO one. It wasn't the vow. It was this other Seduced. one. Seduced. Yeah. They were putting in clips of Jonestown of all the dead <laughs> bodies in Jonestown. I'm like, you are like Nexium had nothing to do with, uh, uh, a Marxist death cult in the middle of the, f- fucking jungle <laughs> what do you ta- Keith Yeah, you, know, you could say lots of things about Keith Vanieri I'm sure but and you know and people have but uh, he, he uh, there was never any mention of uh, group suicide or um, some kind of totalitarian rule you know um, I found that so uh, abhorrent that they would use the deaths of those people in Jonestown you know, their survivors uh, are still alive today. You know, people who actually survived Jonestown, mm-hmm. and then their relatives. So to use that as a, as leverage to convince people that this is, you know, some horrible, horrible cult. It just goes to show how much overreach had to happen to make that make that organization look as horrible as possible.
0: Yeah, I think there's a, there are a couple of things that influence that the first thing the first problem they had is similar to that of scientology though i think scientology actually has real problems but the um when you have a bunch of celebrities or powerful people that are involved in any organization it immediately draws attention there's incentive created for uh District attorneys, prosecutors, investigators—everybody wants to catch those guys, right? It's like that scene in The Wolf of Wall Street when the um, FBI agent is on the boat with um, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Jordan Belfort, and he's like, "I just can't wait till I take this boat back to the bureau." You know, and it's like the same thing I think happened with with Nexium. They thought, you know, everyone's ambition sort of to get these guys because they knew it was going to be such a huge story coupled with the whole entire bullshit that was the me too movement um uh just sort of it it was just a bad wrong place wrong time for for an organization like nexium in which you have you know a semi controversial leader who happens to be sleeping with several of the members
1: yeah bad place wrong time for that group and bad place wrong time for journalism because what counts as journalism these days is i mean the So much of it is just activism, and I heard a uh, interview with uh, I think it's the Times Union. It's the paper in wherever Nexteam's located in New York. They were they were writing lots of stories about them. I heard a podcast with him, and he was just so snarky, and it was clearly like making it very personal, you know, mocking like that they would play volleyball at night. Like why is that necessary? You know, if they they've committed these crimes you're saying that they're very suspicious. Why don't you just stick to facts? Stick to those you're journalists, aren't you? Aren't facts your thing? Mm-hmm. But it's just it's editorial commentary all the time. And uh yeah, it's so it's a sensational factor. Next team has has all the all the components.
0: Yeah, what I, and what I don't understand about it is You know, it's sort of like a Maryland man uh, or a Charles Manson thing, rather, um, where, you know, Charles Manson never actually murdered anybody. Right. But he was convicted because he was sort of part of this conspiracy. He was this insider. Right. Uh, This cult leader. So they say. And you see this thing with with Keith that I think is interesting is that, you know, he was charged with a number of things. uh, But one of the main things was he was accused of basically brainwashing these women in order to perform sexual acts and get other women through collateral and brainwashing to perform acts as well. Right. That was the accusation. But then on the other hand, they go and they sentence Alice and Mac for to three years. And it's like, listen, if she was brainwashed, then she's not culpable. And if she's culpable, then she wasn't brainwashed. So it's yeah. like, you can't really convict both of them. You know, <laughs> you have to pick one. <laughs>
1: I had that same thought. I mean, how cruel is it to sentence someone to three years of prison when they were brainwashed right if you really believe that that's what happened um why would you send somebody like that to to prison Uh, you know so it just goes to show uh how seriously they really regard the idea of brainwashing and um it becomes a means for people to uh get out of trouble they just say that they were brainwashed it's a scapegoat tactic and um yeah yeah it's 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 strange what's what's happened I'm with not, that group I'm
0: not really sure that I even believe that brainwashing exists
1: well you have to be willing to be brainwashed at a certain point i mean you're you're participating in it i don't I mean I know with hypnosis i'm I'm no expert on hypnosis, but the people who are able to be hypnotized and like quack like ducks or whatever you know I'm t- you know that kind of sh- showmanship style of uh, hypnosis.
0: Carnival hypnosis.
1: Yeah. Those, those people have to be really willing to be hypnotized. They have to be into it. You can't hypnotize somebody who does not want to be hypnotized. I think Hmm. that's like a general rule in hypnotism. I, I could be wrong. I'm sure I'll probably have you ever been hypnotized
0: before.
1: Uh, no, I have friends, a good friend of mine who couldn't quit smoking has been hypnotized many times. And he's definitely somebody who, Allows himself smoke. to be. Hit. Well, he, he quit for like two years, actually. It, it, it worked. Like He has to go for a refresher every now and then.
0: <laughs> He's got to um, get a renewal.
1: <laughs> yeah. Actually, it was a, probably a week or two after all the cancellation stuff with me started and, and life was just falling apart from under me on all sides. And a friend of mine who's a hypnotist, professional hypnotist, uh, called me and took me through a hypnosis thing to relax, you know. And it it worked. It was basically like a guided meditation. But if I didn't want to go there, I I wouldn't have gone. I guess there is a line. You can draw a line with people who um, have have diminished intellectual capacity, um, or who have been like you know, I don't know, horrifically um, taken advantage of in certain ways. So they're psychologically in a state where they can be you know directed. but that's different. I the, the, that, That's different than the hypnosis we're talking about.
0: So, um, like I said earlier, I read that um, Quillette piece that you did about uh, going through the whole Me Too movement. Um, you basically got super fucked <laughs> for a long time <laughs> and um, have sort of come out of it, it seems anyway. Um, uh, how did you cope with going through all that shit and overcoming the challenges associated with it.
1: Yeah. I, I, I think so much of it has to do with the way, because of the way I was raised, very abusive households, I became adept at, um, protecting myself by going w- within. And that coupled with the training I've had in meditation over the last seven years or so, um, really saved me, really kept me from spiraling out of control. Um, there are any number of ways I could have spiraled out. I could have freaked out on social media, just posting crazy shit, or uh, could have started drinking or, or, or killed myself, which crossed my mind many times. Um, but there was something, uh, g- call it grace, I don't know, but um, it swept in immediately when all of it started happening and it kind of kept me grounded enough to not, um, completely lose it. Even though I was completely losing it, I was aware that I was completely losing it. And the awareness of that awareness provided me with some stability and, um, and continuing to write poetry like uh, defiantly, because I'm not going to let these people take that from me. They can't, you know? And, um, yeah, it's been three years, and it still flares up. It flared up today. Uh, somebody wished death on me. They said that I should overdose on uh, on pills and die. And this is a poetry world person. He used his real name in an account that he just created, like yesterday, just to fuck with me. And um, But that kind of discourse is acceptable in the poetry world, and I think in the arts in general. If you're seen as, as he called me, a crypto-Nazi... Right. He used doll. <laughs> he probably doesn't. This is how you
0: call me he, a Nazi one more time. I'll sock you in your goddamn face, and you'll stay plastered. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I love that clip. I love that clip. Yeah, I've seen it many That's times. One
0: of my favorites, man. Yeah. He called you a crypto Nazi. He called me Who a crypto Nazi.
1: Yeah, crypto Nazi thinks he's doll. What a douche. <laughs> and I engaged him. I was like, what? So, can you tell me in what way am I a Nazi? I don't understand. You're the one calling for my Yeah, I'm pretty extermination. sure
0: I was celibate. So, you can't say I was abusive.
1: <laughs> yeah, exa- yeah, exactly. And, and you're calling for, for, for my death because of an ideological difference that most, most of which you're just kind of fantasizing about because you don't really know so what my, my politics shit because are.
0: because of your conservative leaning?
1: Because it it's <laughs> all stems from me tweeting that I'm more conservative
0: than not these days. When did that shift happen yeah. for you? Was it just after the Me Too movement?
1: Uh, it started before then. It started when I when I saw what was happening in the poetry world with identity politics. Mm-hmm. And the absolute cowardice in uh, displayed by so many poets who wouldn't give any pushback um, to what was happening. It, specifically, and this is before even identity politics became a phrase that's used all the time. This is... This is like, uh, I don't know, five years ago or something, six years ago. And um, I'll make this very short, but a a poet who's a conceptual poet, he doesn't really write poems. He takes texts that already exist and then reframes them in a certain way. Well, he did that with Michael Brown's autopsy. Why he did that, I don't know. I think that was certainly in poor taste, but this guy revels in poor taste. He did this. He performed it. And then a group of poets calling themselves the Mongrel Coalition sprung up and they just started bullying poets and editors demanding um, diversification. And uh, from what I could tell, most major poetry journals were already diverse um, in in terms of having different if um, you want to
0: get published just write some fucking good poetry that's
1: exactly and, and it will so yeah well you get right to, you got right to it with that comment because now it's become it's not about the quality of the work it's about your you know your identity your 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 bona fides as a um uh marginalized person and it's so bad that i've noticed you know white poets Claiming a, a kind of marginalization that they that I suspect they don't really have. Like there are a lot of I've noticed white straight poets always tend to have mysterious illnesses, and you know they're sick all the time, and so that's the, that's their thing to let to let the poetry, oh, that's their signal.
0: Lyme's disease. Oh, yeah, Lyme, yeah, Lyme Lyme disease. Disease. Lyme Lyme disease. Yeah, Lyme. That's a that's a popular one.
1: Um No shit. But, <laughs> Yeah, because there's like yeah. no
0: obvious symptoms, but you can just always say you don't feel good. It's
1: it's all these invisible illnesses. I'm tired. Oh, I'm so tired. Uh, you know, it's like that's their signal. You know, um, that they're not. Uh, I don't know, evil, evil white people. Um,
0: so what what's your writing process look like? I mean, are you like scouring pages at two a.m. or that is, is is it spontaneous? Is it planned? How, how do you actually? What's your creative process?
1: Um, I I tend to write in notebooks, and uh, with pen and paper. And after a period of time, whether it's a day or a couple days or a week, I go back to the notebook and mine it for things that are useful. And then I work with it in uh, Google Docs, just toying with the language, you know, um, revising it in all sorts of ways until it starts to sound has a particular sound that feels finished as finished as it could be. And I like it to feel like it's outside of me at a certain point. You know, there's no longer, there's no, there's no self-consciousness there anymore. Um, it's some other voice It's mine, but it's also beyond just this, you know, small self sitting here talking to you. It's something bigger than that, which may sound very, um, Delusional and uh, psychotic. No, but it's not. I
0: think I, I kind of understand. <laughs> uh, would you would you say that creativity is something that the mind actually generates, or something that the mind picks up? Because I often think of the mind myself, and I don't want to say this and in, distort in your response. If you think differently, but um, I often think of the mind as more of an antenna than an actual vehicle that generates anything new. I like
1: that. I like that description that one of my favorite poets, uh, his name is Jack Spicer and he had a whole theory about Martians and that his poems came from Martians from the outside. And I don't think he really believed that they came from Martians, but it was just it's a metaphor an, an analogy. Yeah. That the poems yeah. come from the outside and the poem or the poet is the, um, the caretaker of those messages and kind of like the curator of those messages um yeah the poet is a receiver and but it's what really separates poets from just people who rant on greyhound buses and and, and all that who i believe probably are receiving messages from the outside i don't know if you've ever ridden greyhound but um, people uh,
0: ridden a greyhound bus. Ridden a
1: greyhound bus. Yeah. 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 guys. Yeah, I know what you mean.
0: <laughs> so you receive. It's received... really comfortable. It's really <laughs> easy to take a nap. <laughs> so you receive these
1: <laughs> these messages that this and uh, and then it's what what you do with it. You know, that's the craft part comes into it, and um, you know, do I really believe that the that the, the language itself is coming from the out the outside? No, but the impulse to 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 even write a poem it's coming from stimulation that's around me it's coming from the weather it's coming from my metabolism too it's coming from all kinds of sources you know but including certainly the outside world you know yeah for sure
0: who's your favorite poet i don't
1: i I don't have a particular favorite it's like
0: who's one that comes to mind when you get asked that question (laughs) that's uh, a better way to frame it
1: I, I would have to pick somebody like uh, William Carlos Williams, who's like a foundational poet for me and my practice and for, for many other poets. Uh, he was a modernist. He was uh, contemporary with Ezra Pound, friends with Ezra Pound. I saw you um, Ezra today. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Let I almost tweeted
0: Ezra Pound sucks just to just to troll you, but I didn't know that if you would get it. <laughs> I thought you thought yeah, he maybe doesn't no, know I, well enough to know I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I would get it.
1: Well, there's 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 so much there's so much controversy around Ezra Pound and he he's a classic example of art, the art and the artist and there is a separation or if you're of believe if you're of the other frame of mind that there is no separation, so all of his art is tainted by his crazy politics because he was a Uh, supporter of Mussolini and and you know he he was actually
0: Mussolini seemed like a really good idea (laughs) people people forget that we don't we have we have a whole different context for what fascism looks like now than the context they had in the 30s
1: yeah well that's (laughs) well that
0: well that that that's you know
1: people who like who, who would like to cancel Ezra Pound let's say they have no sense of historical context. They're offended that if you, to, to even have that introduced to the, to the conversation because um they don't want their righteousness to be diluted by facts and by, you know, the, the truth. And it is true that these things that Ezra Pound said in the thirties um were in a, historical context that we we really aren't able to fully grasp you know we're not there we're in so the woke people will look through look at these historical situations and look at people look at these people from the past who may have said something abhorrent or whatever and they'll look at it through the lens of today you know there's no there's the it's like all time collapses into the now of social media buzz and hype and anger and hive mind you know re- reactivity and um, i think uh, i think that's a that's a terrible thing it's a terrible thing for art you know they tried to they're like they're protesting picasso recently cuz he, he was mean His wife he, he, something like that yeah, he was mean to his women so they yeah, protest. The building
0: still stands, you know, even if the architect is an asshole.
1: That's right. That's right. I like that. But that is a comment. I will, I will <laughs> yeah. say
0: though that 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 um uh you know, I love the doors. I always love the doors. And I and I noticed uh, you read um no one here gets out alive. That was one of the first yeah. that I read that kind of introduced me to poetry too. Growing up, it had that kind of orange red cover. It was That's awesome. right. And um I tore through that in junior high and I watched the Doors movie, which I thought Oliver Stone did a great job with that. I'm gonna have to reset my camera again. I can tell it froze. But um I tore through the Doors movie and I will say that, you know, I think that Jim Morrison's poetry is good. I think that his, his lyrics are even better than his standalone poetry. I think the Doors were great. But I did enjoy their music more because of who Jim Morrison was and his brand and what he stood for. So like you know, I, I don't I don't I think that you should separate the art from the artist and I think you should, you know, consider them independently. But you can't say that they're completely isolated either because, you know, the way you experience someone, what someone creates has something to do with their identity.
1: Yeah, no, it it's never completely separate. And to really appreciate an artist's work, well, I'll put it another way. You can your appreciation can be richer and deeper of, uh, of any artist if you know a bit about their biography, the context of where the work Came from there, it enriches the work in, in that sense. Um, but to condemn a work, I mean, they could, there could be a movement, we could, we could start one actually to to cancel Jim Morrison posthumously because you saw it in the uh, in the in the Oliver Stone film. I mean, he picked up a duck that his girlfriend had roasted so nicely, threw it on the ground and stomped on it, locked her in the was, closet
0: and set the house walk, on fire. Yeah. He's, yeah. <laughs> let's not forget that yeah. one i mean uh, i know was bad but it was a duck I know.
1: <laughs> yeah yeah i, I think it's it's about understanding that art's made by human beings and but art is also um hopefully uh transcendent enough to be better than the artist you know not not in some corny you know feel good like chicken soup for the soul sense but just um at least when I the poetry that I read, I know that that work is inspired and or the poetry I like. the work is inspired and does transcend the human being who's writing it. you know it's 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 an expression of the best of what a human is capable of when working with these materials that they're given, whether it's language or paint or whatever. and um, and for the reader, it's a way to participate in that. Not an ideal state, but a state that can be aspired to in a sense, you know. Um, And it vivifies the world, you know, like great art. uh, Great. And I hate using generalizations, but you know, like I I read a beautiful Wallace Stevens poem, I see the world a bit. uh, Things are are brighter, you know. Things are clear. I'm feeling more. My heart's open. My mind's open, you know. But he also was a dick.
0: So, I often think of art as a <laughs> <laughs> that was, you should publish that 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 rant. Just first page. Send send forward. me the transcript. Yeah. I will. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I often think of art as a coping mechanism. Um, especially music. I guess all art, but music is the one that comes to mind because it's so accessible. Uh, both a coping mechanism for the consumer as well as the artist. And it seems to me, and this could be off base, so you know, I'm totally interested in your thoughts. Um, it seems to me that in order to have the discipline and the motivation to make incredibly good art, which is often not lucrative, even if you're amazing, in order to have that sort of discipline and motivation, it seems to me reasonable that you have a greater demand to cope with something or you have something bigger that you need to cope with so it it would inherently follow that there's an increased likelihood for really good art to be made by really fucked up people
1: it it, it bears true in the biographies of you know poets who are, are truly great you know who've stuck around for who've, whose work continues to be read like like i like wallace stevens um yeah he um he he said some very cruel things to people by all accounts he was just kind of a kind of a weirdo you know he was like weird like he, he would he would be considered creepy these days like he probably w- would end up on some list as creepy you know he would have been me too certainly um but yeah it's i think for so many artists too i mean this might take us down a whole way that i'm not equipped to go, to go down, but sure. I, I think it starts and it for so many artists, the, the artists I love and that I've studied, it starts in childhood and um, there's a wound there. And uh, the creative act is not only a way to reclaim agency, but um, in a way to kind of put the world and all of its chaos into some kind of order, or at least into know a kind of song a kind of way of um making sense of it you know and um and then that matures into wanting to make sense of the human condition in general or just wanting to address the human condition and you know and by doing that you you bring others with you um into that greater understanding of what it means to be human like you mentioned kerouac uh earlier he, he his demons were right on the surface you know and um
0: and he wrote it was so fucking awesome it's like silicon <laughs> yeah, yeah. valley just caught up with him they're like Did microdosing. They? It, well i just think kind of because he um was really into the eastern stuff before it was trendy you know so that's and, true yeah yeah and and i i just i feel like you know, sometimes i laugh at silicon valley when they like uh, they, they start doing these things in the name of enhanced productivity and you heard a lot more about it before trump was elected and everybody just talked about trump exclusively um but you know they were microdosing uh, uh lsd for increased productivity and comparing the performance on modafinil versus adderall and and you know trying a uh, uh, meditation in, in order to calm their minds so they could be more productive on, during a software binge and there was like this sort of like idol worship of Maximum productivity of intelligence in the Silicon Valley software tech startup thing, and um, I think that it's it was just funny to me how these people who I don't typically consider to be spiritually enlightened were kind of commercializing everything that was good about um, something that really has nothing to do with commercial success. It has to do with you know personal fulfillment and self-actualization rather than external
1: yeah 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 that 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 is interesting because when kerouac became involved like the story of the dharma bums and jaffe ryder is gary snyder and they're discovering these buddhist texts they're 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 doing zen meditation um philip whalen is in that uh book as well under i forget the name of his character but he went on to be remember. yeah he was the the uh what do they call the leader of a, of a, of a Zen uh, a, ashram? No, he wasn't a guru. Oh, he was, yeah, he was the leader not, of a, I'm
0: not well versed,
1: he became a full blown Zen monk priest, you know, but they, 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 they found these teachings right at, when they were introduced to, to Western culture, or at least in the popular, like American sense. Cause Alan Watts was contemporary with them and, and his writings were influential to these guys. And um haiku was just starting to become uh, a thing. It was being published in English. Uh, R. H. Bliss was, was all a...
0: the rage, like an apple on the floor. <laughs> is that is that
1: in Dharma Bombs? No, no, no. You just made that up. Was in Dharma
0: bombs. I just made that up. Yeah.
1: You're a damn. You're a goddamn genius.
0: I'm a poet, and I didn't even know it, bro. No. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Ever yeah. heard that before? That joke? No, no, never. No, never. never. <laughs>
1: No, never, never, never. No, a, a drunk uncle's never slapped me on the back and said that in my ear.
0: Jesus Christ! But, but uh, what the fuck? But uh,
1: yeah, yeah, Kerouac, Yeah, um, yeah. You're right. They were in it for for uh, truly in it for enlightenment, and I think Kerouac's interest in Buddhism was was absolutely sincere. And
0: oh yeah, I mean, a, a devout Catholic, I believe. I think he went back to the old Catholic roots. But well, he was
1: always Catholic, and that's an interesting thing about his his not spirituality. Really I guess
0: it's not incompatible. Yeah,
1: he them. he wrote about them in tandem. You know, um, he never fully became. You know, I'm a Buddhist. That's never. He never. I don't. He never said I. I don't. He he may have, but he was always a Buddhist and a Catholic, and I think more of a Catholic than a Buddhist. But you know, if you read. Um, Golden Scripture of Eternity, I think, is the the title of a one of his uh, Buddhist-inspired texts. He was kind of not imitating, but but kind of writing in the style of uh, Buddhist uh, sutras and stuff like that. It's um, totally sincere, you know. And I think I, I, my impression is some people view his his interest in Buddhism as a kind of um, corny cultural appropriation thing, you know. And uh, certainly there's, was
0: there's not. N- there's no. Fucking such thing as cultural appropriation. That is such bullshit. Because all culture is a combination of who you know, <laughs> right? That's that's it, right. Yeah, yeah. Like cultural, it, you yeah. cultural appropriation because we have a taco stand in a white neighborhood. Well, those fuckers are speaking Spanish because Spain invaded them. Okay? So they culturally appropriated Spain. All right? That's so it's, right. Like, it's bullshit. It's who you know. And if you're hanging out with people that know different shit, you're going to appropriate their ideas. It's just going to fucking happen. Who gives a fuck? I, oh, my God. It's such a kill switch. It's like it's, if you say cultural appropriation is is morally uh, uh, out of line, then how are we ever supposed to make progress anywhere? Because it seems to me that all progress is, culturally speaking, is changing and sharing ideas.
1: Totally. Culture is appropriation culture wouldn't be culture if other cultures weren't being appropriated and blended and that's culture is there such a thing as a pure culture that is undefiled by influence
0: no there's not and and, and, damn romans culturally (laughs) appropriated greek architecture exactly yeah (laughs) fucked it up by making the corinthian column (laughs) yeah let's cancel
1: them i mean
0: cancel rome bro cancel
1: rome <laughs> yeah i mean they were terrible they're you know feeding rome's people with blinds
0: rome's still around man it's it's still catholic around Church. in the air they just, they just turned the state into a religion
1: are you roman catholic
0: yeah if I'm i ask that's, yeah yeah I, that's... Uh, I converted in college um because i thought i was going to be a politician and i thought it would be necessary for me to be catholic uh my actual faith is i call myself a jordan peterson christian and that uh, I consider myself Christian, but nobody who's Christian would think I was.
1: <laughs> well, I think that can be said for a lot of Catholics. I mean, uh, a lot of like the, the real mystic Catholics. Um, they're they're way they're well, Catholicism is already too far out for most Christians anyway, you know. But but the mystics, and I'm thinking even of like Thomas Merton. Um, there's a poet named Robert Lax who I don't know if he'd identify as uh, Catholic, but he may have been Catholic, but he was a good friend of Thomas Merton's. And um, I don't know, they were just, um, they were they were very radical, aesthetically speaking. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, Robert Lax was, his poems would consist of just repeated words as a kind of mantra, you know. But um, I don't know, I guess it kind of ties back into Kerouac because Thomas Merton and Robert Lax and others have seen the um, relationship between uh Christianity or between the teachings of Christ and something like Buddhism or the great, you know, wisdom teachings of the East. And um I love that. You know, I, I I love that approach. I don't I was baptized Catholic and thought about becoming Catholic. I, I was going to the uh whatever they call those classes for adults.
0: The confirmation. Oh yeah the RCA the RCA,
1: yeah, something like that. Yeah. And I, I got totally I couldn't get through the, 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 um, the, uh, purgatory thing. It, it, I, I knew that they, I knew Catholics believed in purgatory, but I did not know about, um, indulgences. And I did not know that basically if you're not on the level of a saint, you're going to purgatory. It doesn't matter if you just confessed and you're going to purgatory. I mean, and that freaked me out. And I, it, 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 Yeah, it put me off, but that doesn't mean I don't. I I think think Catholicism is beautiful.
0: So the problem that I have with Catholicism and other denominations of Christianity is I think that Christians lean too much on the veracity of the magic, right? So when I was going through RCIA, one of the guys was like, you know, uh, one of my problems as I struggle with this decision is I'm not really sure that I believe that jesus christ literally came back from the dead you know and everyone's like oh no there's here are the reasons why we believe that you know and at the end of the class i pulled him aside i was like listen it's like it doesn't matter if it really happened That's not the matter. <laughs> <laughs> you know and then what i mean to say is if you look at like old testament stories in particular and there's that famous story where they're moving the ark of the covenant which you were not allowed to touch right and they had to move it on this like platform just like indiana jones And um, one of the guys slipped and the guy behind them put his hand on the arc so it wouldn't fall off the platform that they were carrying. And as soon as he touched it was hit with a bolt of lightning. Right. And if you believe that literally happened, you walk away thinking do whatever the fuck God says or you're, or you're fucked. But if you think it's a metaphor, then maybe the meaning is don't do the wrong thing for the right reasons. Maybe right. it's a deeper meaning. Maybe it's an anti-Machiavellian story that the end doesn't justify the means, right? Like, And, and maybe you'd be a better person if you could adhere to the, the metaphor of the story, the actual meaning, the theme of the story, than adhering to it as if it actually happened, literally. And I think a lot of things in the Bible I think, actually happened, okay? So don't get me wrong. I don't think the whole thing's just made up. But I think an awful lot of it is intentionally allegorical because it forces you to discuss it with your peers, to think about it, to ponder it, and come to conclusions about what it means to be a good human being that you wouldn't come to those conclusions if it was historically just a you know a text.
1: Yeah. I mean and and those the books of the Bible, I mean, they're coming from an oral tradition, I think, right? And, and, it, and it's a way I mean just reading the gospels, Jesus taught through allegory, you know, and parables and such. And yeah, the Bible is is full of those like the the whale thing which I was thinking about recently cuz somebody in just Massachusetts a big fish. <laughs> it, <never laughs> whale. it doesn't say whale. But some guy <laughs> some fisherman in Massachusetts got swallowed by a whale for real recently. Do you
0: know what's crazy about that is if you spend long enough if you spend long enough time, <laughs> I swear to god, if you spend long enough time in a, in a in the belly of a whale, you the digestive fluids uh will bleach your skin. Oh, I, yeah. And the, yeah. In the story, Jonah and the Whale, he's described as glistening or whatever when, he, when, he's, on, when he's beached. Oh, that's proof. And so it's like, you know, yeah, I don't know if it's proof or not, but it's just, it's just funny that, you know, like you read it and it comes up like a miracle. Like he was blessed and he came out of this whale, like resurrected. And it's really? like, or maybe he was just fucking bleached. <laughs> that's interesting. Well,
1: the, the guy who got swallowed by the whale recently, he was so intent on not going down to the to the belly because he knew what would happen. Oh, he, didn't wanna, he, he didn't want. He didn't want to be digested. Yeah, he was holding on. I mean, it's wild. But um, oh, I, why,
0: I saw clips of that. I didn't think it was real.
1: Why did I bring that up? Yeah, I brought it up as an example of maybe something in the Bible that didn't actually happen, but was used as a teaching mm-hmm. uh, tool. Um, yeah, yeah. I think that's a, for la- lack of a better word, it's an, an enlightened way to approach uh, Christianity and especially Catholicism. Um, I, f- I find a lot of value in in Catholicism and in the saints and in a life of devotion and in the the ethics that are conveyed and and established in, within Catholicism, despite all of the you know nightmarish things that have happened uh, with the. Why
0: do you think that is? Nobody talks about that really what i happened? think <laughs> i mean so many priests like th- over 30 percent or something it's like astronomical numbers
1: well i guess there's no way to tell if priests were were engaging in that kind of abuse you know before recorded history or before anything like that would be thought of to, would be anybody would think to record it but right so i i'm just imagining that many years ago a century ago uh, it, a priest was probably uh, he was the center of the of the of the, the village or whatever. The, there was a much more community based thing, and that's even true going back, uh, you know, before Catholicism started to take a downturn. Because the town I grew up in was yeah. mostly Catholic, and it was a very community based thing. But um, I just think that there's way too much stimulation in the modern world for people to live a celibate life and when they're trying to live a celibate life and they're surrounded by what they're surrounded by it i i think it causes major distortions in, um in the in the in the in the mind you know and in, in someone's so wiring
0: basically the the priests have denied themselves any sexual gratification for so long that it started to mess with their psyche and they they, they expressed that that psychological stress and unhealthy ways on other people, the most vulnerable. Uh, I, th- I think
1: that's, I think that has something to do with it, but also that there are priests who um, became priests to prey on, on, on kids. There was like a case here locally recently, the priest, you know, this guy was abusing kids from the very beginning, as soon as he put the, the, you know, the cloth on and um, you know, it, it, yeah. So, but it's, Nothing I just said, it, I, do I absolutely believe? Because I don't know. And I wonder, too, right. why is it so pervasive in the Catholic Church? It's. It, I don't think it's as easy as just saying the modern world is, is overly stimulating and to the point where trying to live this devout and celibate life um, will, will warp someone. But it, it, it seems maybe plausible to me in some situations. I don't know. I, I don't know.
0: Well, if you think about the... Um... If you think about the widespread cultural use and acceptance of pederasty in the Roman civilization, and you think about the union of Rome with the Catholic Church through Constantine, and those cultural influences, um, you know, after the fall of Rome as a state, it still the culture still existed in the church, and you know they were speaking Latin at mass until the seventies, right? Or Vati- That's right. Vatican II was. And maybe it's just the case that it's a hangover from a culture 1500 years ago, and those traditions kind of stuck around in a sort of secret kind of we don't talk about it way, and we just kind of discovered it.
1: Yeah, no, it's like yeah, you. I think you nailed it. It's the 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 secretiveness of it, and you. I mean, these cases of. Uh, priests that have like you know done horrible things to many children—they were moved around from parish to parish to parish, right. and uh, the records were kept sealed. Um, so it's a it's a culture of protecting each other and keeping it totally secret. Maybe if that were dealt with earlier on, you know, like uh, it wouldn't have blown up to the point where it has now. Because um, I think there still is uh, a culture of secrecy within the Catholic Church that. This, the guy who I was talking about, he killed, he actually killed a boy, this priest. And he, he confessed only a few weeks ago on his deathbed. He finally confessed. People thought that he did it, but he finally confessed. And uh, what were
0: the circumstances of that,
1: it was someone he was abusing and no one, he, he didn't go into detail about why he did it. And he was using very cagey language, but enough to let the police know that he did it. But, um, he took him down to the river and and bludgeoned him with a rock and threw him in the river and the Springfield, Springfield diocese.
0: Uh, but he was a hell of a poet, man. Hell of a poet.
1: (laughs) Sure. I'm I'm sure. Uh, they, they, they still won't release the documents they have on this guy. It's like, why not? Why, why are you hiding these things? I don't understand, you know, so they still, they still keep things very, um, very close in that way. And I, I think it's wrong. It's disgusting.
0: Well, what's the solution? Just let priests get married transparency After a generation though'll work itself out well, I think
1: uh after the first credible al- accusation of child abuse they sh- they should be defrocked, and
0: um I don't know what that not, word means I'm sorry well
1: uh, is that that might not even be the word they use What is the word they use when they uh make a priest uh, they size la- them or something like that they uh strip them of oh, their priestly yeah
0: basically yeah, fire priests. That's why they're not doing it. I yeah. Well, God gives a hell of a homily. Hell of a homily. <laughs> <laughs> Give him a pass. <laughs> uh, it's
1: it's it's very sad to me because I I love the beauty of the Catholic Church. The beauty, literally, the aesthetic beauty and how they treat aesthetics is is uh, yeah
0: yeah. You, you you won't go into a more beautiful church. You have almost a spiritual experience just walking into it, and the way it smells because of the incense and the holy water and. And the fact that it's open all the time and empty most of the time, um, it's it is definitely an inspiring experience to walk into um, a Catholic cathedral.
1: Yeah, always, and it's they always have a particular silence and a particular vibration about them that um, I find very uh, very calming, very comforting. Um, yeah, and the, the Catholic Church here and where I live is. Uh, very old and very beautiful. It was just recently uh, renovated, brought back to its original glow, its original splendor. They cleaned the stained glass windows. And it's just, yeah, it's stunning. And um, I love that. And I love Mass. Mass is a beautiful ritual.
0: You know, it's funny because the Catholic Church believes in transubstantiation, right? So they believe that the, the the communion actually literally turns into the body and blood of Christ in your body yeah. through a miracle. And the um, Catholic church that I went to when I lived in California offered a gluten-free version of uh, the home.
1: <laughs>
0: that is amazing. That is amazing.
1: Are you I'm making that bad. up? That's real. I swear to God,
0: that's real. I couldn't come wow. up with that. I mean, I'm creative and clever, but that's pretty good shit.
1: <laughs> that I haven't heard that one. That, that's California, man. Yeah.
0: I know. I know. Well, so what's next for you? What are you working on now?
1: Uh, I'm writing a memoir. No shit. Um, So the Colette essay spurred on this idea to write a a full length book about those experiences and and other experiences, but it's really an extrapolation of, I mean, it's almost like the Colette essay is like an outline for the the memoir I'm working on. and so I'm in the middle of that process. I'm I'm maybe halfway through a, a decent draft at this point. Um, do you know what
0: it's gonna be called?
1: No, I have so many bad titles, you know, that's just the way titles go for me. I come up with dozens of really, really, really bad ones. I mean if I, I told my brother one of the titles and he just started laughing hysterically and he continues what, to mock me. Do you me mind for sharing it? I will. I will. I'll do that. I'll be vulnerable here. I have to say I was I was so loaded on iced coffee when I came up with this and I don't know what Sorry. I was I mean I was kind of yeah and it was really hot. I probably had heat stroke. But it was uh you can't cancel the sun. And my brother just thinks that's hilarious. And I, I agree. It's a fucking terrible title. You know? It's like I'm trying yeah. to th- trying to come up with a with a with a metaphor
0: for like I yeah, it's just it's not
1: it's not working, but they have to be that bad in the beginning for me to finally stumble on the right one.
0: You should call it Joseph and the Technicolor rainbow.
1: <laughs> that would, it would work actually. It would work. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, so what's it like when you, when you sit down and I don't want to take too much of your time, and I know that we've already gone over for you. Um, oh, it's okay. Well, I'm just enjoying okay. this conversation so much. Uh, um, what's it been like writing a memoir? Are you like having memories that you forgot that you even had?
1: Oh man. So when I first started writing the memoir, um, I didn't know about what was going to happen because I, 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 as I was writing about my childhood, I found myself becoming very irritable, depressed. Um, I was sitting at a picnic table in town here in a park, just like writing a notebook and, some drunk guy was screaming, um, screaming the word faggot and stuff. And I just stood up and walked right over to him and told him to shut the fuck up. And I normally wouldn't do that. I would just avoid confrontation, just, you know, whatever he's drunk. But I realized that it, 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 I was, I, I was still in that. I was in the frame of mind or in the space of childhood again, And I was hearing this man screaming and screaming uh, faggot, which I was, you know, I I grew up in a working class area. You write poetry or show sensitivity. You're a faggot. I've been called that many. Yeah. 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 I got uh,
0: brothers in the middle, middle (laughs) middle class America. I've been called a faggot. Oh, yeah. 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 Because you know, insane. I play the piano.
1: <laughs> yeah. So it really it upset me, and I, I went over to him. But I, I, it's like, why did I do that? And it didn't really click in, uh, until later in the day or the next day that when I'm writing about uh, any period of time in the past, something happens psychologically where I'm put back there. Even when I'm done writing, I'm a part of me is still there. And uh, the memoirist Mary Carr wrote a book called the art of memoir. And, um, she, she talks a lot about that. And when I, when I read that, I was like, Oh God, like that, you know, now I really understand what's happening. And she basically says, if you're writing a memoir, if you can't handle that kind of, um, the emotional, uh, wear and tear of working on such a thing, like she said, after she turned in a memoir, she got the, she got like the pneumonia. She, um, one guy read another memoirist who's popular. He Lyme relapsed. Disease. He really Lyme disease. That only happens when you're writing bad poetry. But um, yeah. So that that part's been um as much work as the writing itself. You know, the the mitigating the uh, the side effects. But at the same time, it's uh it's been a wonderful way to process so much stuff, so many things that have happened. Well, you, know.
0: you already lived through it once. You do it again.
1: Yeah, exact. Yeah, and I I'm and it's yeah, and it's led to uh forgiving, you know, uh, many of the people who were terrible to me as a kid and and forgiving the people who were behind um ruining my life, you know, for scurrilous reasons. I mean, just completely vague bullshit reasons, you know. I admit I've fucked up in the past. I was a weird bad drunk, but uh a predator, a serial abuser, groomer of women, groomer. They use the word groom. Who did I ever groom? They've never, you know, it was a, a year long campaign. They never had any receipts. There was never anything really specific um, aside from one or two incidents. And they just, you know, they, they, they magnified those to the point where that's who I am. That's who I am to them, to these people. I'm not even human. I'm like a Harvey Weinstein or something. And um, it's it's awful. It's absurd.
0: Is it hard to... Because I know forgiving is, is part of the healing process. Um, is it hard to forgive someone who's dead? Like I know, for example, your uncle was a bad dude and he died. Do you wish... That he was still around, so you could have had some closure. Uh,
1: No, I've no, I've never had that thought because I don't know how he would have. I don't, I don't know how he would have continued to 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 live in the way that he was living. Um, People are might be watching or listening that don't know anything about the essay I wrote, but he was, uh, I I think, closeted homosexual, and he he did very, uh, he abused me, and I don't know, he may have abused other people too um yeah he was very closeted and lived in a very homophobic uh environment he lived with my grandmother who was all you know it was yeah faggot all the you know that word was just being thrown around the house all the time so um i I don't know how he would have survived his life anyway so i don't really i tend to not think about it because it's so bleak to me Mm -hmm. um But the forgiveness is—it's never about letting someone off the hook. It's never about you know justifying his behavior in any kind of way. It's um, just no longer hanging on to the anger that keeps me uh, attached in this way that is ultimately damaging to me, you know, to him. And like this one, like, like just you got to cut the cord, you know, and let him go. It's more about release, releasing the anger, no longer holding that anger towards that person because. You're only damaging yourself, whether that person's alive or dead. And forgiveness, too, doesn't have to be done. You don't have to tell somebody you're forgiving them. You don't have to. Some people you do. But um, in the case of my uncle or my grandmother or these people who who I don't even know who were attacking me and trying to like really actively destroy my life, I'm not going to email any of them and tell them I forgive you, but uh, I'll be damned if I walk around with resentment and anger that, um, literally would cause me health problems. Like I'm not giving that to them. Like I'm, you know, you're, you're a really fucked up person. You know, you must have, not you chase.
0: I I understand. (laughs) You know, you you gotta be really,
1: you gotta be really messed up to, uh, to say the least to, go after somebody in the way that they did and the tactics they were using, the things they were saying it was terrible. They, they threw the kitchen sink at me and um, they're, they're in pain. Yeah. I, one of them, I, a couple of them I see in town because two of them live here in the town I live in. And I see them every now and then walking around and yeah, they just look very lost, very broken, very sad I'm not walking around like that, you know?
0: So do they just like avoid eye contact? They totally avoid eye
1: contact. They totally avoid it. But the, the one, this guy who was a male feminist at the time during me too, he put it in his bio. He's like a poetry world guy. He he came after me with everything. And I, I don't know why I barely, I barely know the guy never did anything to him, but he walked by me about two years later and, uh, tried to just walk right past me. And I said, Hey, so-and-so and uh you had a lot to say about me online why don't you say it to my face and he immediately got irate as a def- person on the defense would. like
0: what are you talking about rah, rah. he said and what he, are you talking about
1: yeah he said what are you ta-? he said what are you talking about and i was like you know what i'm talking about because you spent a year harassing me emailing my what publishers what would you
0: have done if he said it to his if he said it to your face if he was like all right what would you how would you have reacted um
1: I, I would have I would have countered it with with um, well I did end up count because he he after he simmered down at you know in the beginning he started throwing things at me he said you're thuggish you're uh, uh this he called me thuggish like and I said I just I just stopped him I said what what do you mean thuggish can you give me an example of my of my thuggery like how have I behaved thuggish he he, he was like uh, caught in the headlights and it just. It was like seeing it in person, like how it's all about the charged language that they throw at you. There's doesn't have to be substance around it, you know, but it's different when you confront somebody face to face and they realize they have no substance. And so he said, let's go on a walk. And we went for a walk, two hour walk. He admitted things to me that I told him I wouldn't repeat and I'm not. But uh, I, I'll say, though, that it was an orchestrated thing that went on. He apologized and I, I forgave him. I, t- I told him, I forgive you. I said, and if you ever have any problems, if you need to talk to somebody, let me know. Cause he he reeked of alcohol and I know he had just got a divorce. And, um, that really, that was closure. So when I see him walking around here, I don't have any reactivity towards him, you know,
0: that's awesome that you had the opportunity to do that. You know, it's really seldom, you know, I think everybody in their life has two or three people that really hurt them. And it's very, very uncommon to have the opportunity to work that out.
1: It, it was a gift. It was a gift, as difficult as it was. Because, it, I mean, at at certain points, it was, re- you know, I, I had to really mindfully keep the rage down you know like really had to kind of just not go there because i'm walking next to somebody who i mean hundreds hundreds of tweets emails to my publishers to the person i was worked at school i was doing work for um yeah it was uh brutal i mean he, he would mock me relentlessly you know he would it was um really bad yeah, yeah but i you know, we're, we're, we're okay now enough. We're okay enough. And, uh, well, I guess that's, that's another kind of forgiveness. And other people, I'll, pro- I'll never see them. I'll never run into them. Some of them, I don't even know what they look like, but I can still forgive them in the sense that I'm not going to carry around bitterness and resentments because that would, and that would also fuck up my writing because I can't write if I'm full of bitterness and anger that hasn't been processed, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sometimes anger can give you momentum when you're writing, but that kind of anger, that kind of resentment it, it's that's, it's a, uh, there's a kind of entropy to it and it, it's not conducive to, to creative activities.
0: Fascinating. Well, thank you so much for coming on, man. It's been awesome. Thanks. Thanks. Here. I could talk glad, to you forever. I'm
1: glad we did. Well, we should just talk anyway again.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, Let's um stay in touch. Where can people find you if they want to follow you or read your books?
1: Um, you can find me at, I'll, I'll tell you the, uh, the address. Yeah. Joseph my name dot com. I have a newsletter. I send out a poet, a poem a week and, um, yeah, that's the best way to, to connect.
0: Okay. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you and, right. um, uh, good night and good luck.
1: All right. Good night.
0: I solemnly ask of every man who hears this case to
1: let his own mind pronounce a verdict upon it. You have heard the testimony of the state's witnesses. The confession of Peter Keating has made...